The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Polishing Management Protocols in HER2 Expressing GI Cancers with Targeted Agents. A focus on refining team-based strategies to individualize BTC and GEA care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NXP 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program entitled Polishing Management Protocols in HER2 Expressing GI Cancers with Targeted Agents. Um, tonight panelists are Dr. Jeffrey Ku, MD, and Shubham Pant. I'm Elena Alamova. If you would like a copy of this, these slides, you can go to peerview.com at 2023GI. So in terms of our goals for today, uh, we would like to recognize current evidence supporting molecular testing and its role in treatment selection for patients with HER2 positive GI cancers. We're going to discuss uh, personalized treatment strategies based on molecular findings, the current evidence and patient specific factors when managing HER2 expressing GI cancers. And then we're going to apply practical strategies to manage and mitigate treatment related AEs associated with HER2 targeted agents in particular when managing BTC and gastroesophageal cancers. As I've mentioned, I'm Alan Alamova. I'm an assistant professor at University of Toronto at Princess uh, Margaret Hospital. So we all know that HER2 aberrations um, are an established therapeutic target in breast and GI cancers. But what um, we have recently found out is that, uh, that HER2 aberrations are also present across a variety of other solid tumors. So these would include lung, salivary gland, biliary tract, pancreas uh, as examples. A number of novel HER2-targeted therapies are being evaluated in, in GI cancers, which indicates that there is an, a role and impact of these therapies, which will likely continue to expand, uh, along with a need for, uh, for broader HER2 testing. When we look at the management of advanced biliary tract cancers and the current shortcomings, a recent assessment of over 1,000 oncology providers who treat cholangiocarcinomas found that 81 were not confident in their ability to use targeted therapies uh, in patients with advanced cholangiocarcinoma. When we look at who receives what in these tumors, 85% of patients will receive gemcitabine-based chemotherapy as first line. Only 50% of these patients then go on to initiate second line treatments, which would mainly consist of five FU-based therapies. And very few patients will actually receive third line treatments. The median duration on any of these treatments is extremely short. In HER2-positive gastroesophageal under, uh, adenocarcinomas, um, looking at real-world evidence, we find that one-third or 34% of patients are not tested for HER2 status when we look at electronic health record data from 2011 to 2018. 25% um, of all patients do not receive uh, treatment after diagnosis, and only 58% of patients who are HER2 positive receive HER2 targeted uh, systemic therapies in the uh, first line. Of the patients who do receive treatment, um, only half will go on to second line therapy and less than one fifth will receive third line therapy. 
And when we look at giving these patients second-line targeted therapy, it's often delayed uh, from the time of progression, particularly in uh, community oncology practices. Um, so is there an unmet need in HER2-positive GI cancers, and can this be addressed? Uh, this question was looked at using the Netherlands Cancer Registry and the Dutch Pathology Registry, and they looked at over 3,000 patients. What they were able to show is that HER2 testing has increased over time. So overall, 77% of, of HER2-positive patients actually go on to receive trastuzumab. The median overall survival was higher in patients with both positive and negative HER2 status. And when you looked at patients who were not tested, their outcomes were the worst. So actually understanding the appropriate biomarkers is important in all patients. There are various mechanisms of action of targeted uh, and ways to target HER2. So there's the single epitope monoclonal antibodies, which would include pertuzumab, trastuzumab, margituximab, which work by inhibiting receptor dimerization, promotion of receptor internalization, and engagement of ADCC. There are uh, ADCs, uh, the, for example, transduzumab deroxtecan, and they work by targeting delivery of highly cytotoxic agents directly into the tumor cells. Then we have small molecule inhibitors of the TKIs, so lapatinib, neratinib, tucatinib being one of the newer ones. And finally, we have bispecific antibodies, um, for instance, uh, zanadatinib. And zanadatinib in particular targets uh, the uh, trastuzumab and pertuzumab binding domains. So our first speaker tonight is Shubham Pant. He is a professor in the Department of GI Medical Oncology and Department of Investigational Cancer Therapeutics at University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Well, thank you so much, Elena. And uh, good morning, good evening, uh, uh, and good afternoon to our, our viewers. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, individualizing BTC management for biliary tract cancer with HER2 targeted agent. And we're really gonna discuss how a personalized approach can improve outcomes. So as we know, biliary tract cancers is a heterogeneous, uh, it's a heterogeneous disease. It's basically divided into three parts, gallbladder cancer, uh, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And that is important because the HER2 positivity or overamplification can be different in these different subsets. So about 20 to 30% of gallbladder cancers can have an overexpression of uh, HER2, about 10 to 20% of extrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas and about one to 5% of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. So it's very varied according to the diff different subtypes. This is the NCCN guidelines uh, for uh, metastatic cholangiocarcinoma. As you can see on the right uh, for HER2 positive tumors, Trastuzumab and pertuzumab have made it into the NCCN guidelines on the basis of my pathway trial that I'm going to talk about. So this is uh, precision oncology, and it's really uh, hit home for cholangiocarcinomas. Uh, about a decade back, or even half a decade back, there were not many options, only chemotherapy options for these patients. However, now we sequence most of these uh, cancers, at least in the metastatic setting. And as you can see, there have been different approvals like pembrolizumab for MSI high tumors, lerotrectinib and trectinib for n fusions. And uh, the big ones, uh, which is a higher percentage, 
is pemigatinib, which is an FGFR inhibitor for FGFR2 positive cholangiocarcinoma. Then we had infigratinib, also received accelerate approval. Ivocidinib was for IDH1 mutations. And fotibacnib is the most recent new kid on the block, uh, which got FDA approval for FGFR2 positive cholangiocarcinoma. And one drug that we're going to talk about today, zanitidumab, which, which got the breakthrough therapy designation for HER2 amplified cholangiocarcinoma. And uh, like we talked about, there are different genomic differences based on tumor location. And this is just a cartoon of the same. So the main thing to remember is that FGFR and IDH1 are mostly in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, about 5 to five to 10% of these patients. However, uh, HER2 positivity is more in extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma and mostly highly expressed in gallbladder cancer. And there are all these other obviously targets. So it's a very target-rich disease. So we really should be doing next-generation sequencing on all our patients with uh, advanced disease. This is just showing you the different ways of detecting HER2 amplification. As you can look on the left is immunohistochemistry, then fluorescent incytohybridization, and next-generation sequencing that we use uh, very commonly now. And this is the different ways, uh, the comparison between the detection method for HER2 overexpression and amplification. Uh, what we can get from this is that if you do a next-gen sequencing, it does enable the assessment of HER2 copy number and mutation simultaneously, along with FGFR, IDH1, MSI high, uh, so it can add tumor mutational burden. So really, uh, you know, this can point in one test, it can give you different targets uh, for any potential targeted therapy options for our patients with advanced cholangiocarcinomas. And I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, chemotherapy in this disease. And unfortunately, it doesn't do a lot. So uh, as you can see, this was the ABC06 trial. And the response rate for the chemotherapy was 5% with a median progression-free survival of four months. And this was in the second-line setting. So after first-line therapy for advanced disease. So remember that uh, number, 5%. This uh, was... Uh, small retrospective uh, look in about 100 patients, which was resected patients with uh, cholangiocarcinoma, patients who were HER2 positive, very much like breast cancer. They did very poorly compared to the patients which, who did not express HER2. And this tells you that this HER2 is a true oncogenic driver in this disease. And this is another uh, uh, kind of retrospective analysis done by one of my colleagues, Dr. Dambrava. And what she looked at was ERB2 or HER2 amplification by NGS beyond conventional indications and which are breast cancer and gastroesophageal cancer. So this was for all patients other than that. Uh, about 4.9% of the patients were biliary tract cancers. And what it showed was that if the patients in these malignancies were HER2 positive and they got a HER2 directed therapy, then they did better than those patients who were HER2 positive and did not get a HER2-directed therapy. So again, it tells you that this is a true driver, oncogenic driver in this disease. This was the My Pathway trial that we talked about. Again, this was part of a basket trial. So majority of what we know in biliary tract cancers, other than a trial that I'm going to discuss today, is part of a basket trial. So in this, 661 patients were enrolled on My Pathway and 39 with HER2 positive metastatic biliary tract cancers. 
Importantly, they also included ampullary cancers in this that have not been included mostly in other trials. Uh, the median previous lines of therapy was two. Uh, Gemcitabine-based regimens were the most common regimens given previously. <clears throat> Sorry. And as we can see, the overall response rate was 29% with a progression-free survival of four months and overall survival of 10.9 months. We're going to talk about the HERB trial, which was presented last year at uh, ASCO. Again, this was this was a smaller trial, an investigator-initiated trial of, um, of this trastuzumab deruxetecan in patients with or to overexpressing bilirubin tract cancers. And as you can see, it has, uh, this is a classic ADC, has a target, has a linker, and then has the payload, which is uh, otopoiasomase inhibitor. Uh, this was uh, in, uh, done in Japan. Uh, they enrolled 30 patients uh, with histologically confirmed unresectable recurrent BTC. They did have centrally confirmed HER2 expressing status. It is important to note that 50% were gallbladder cancers that we would expect in these patients. And about 10 patients uh, were IHC 3 plus and about 12 patients in the HER2 positive, which was designated HER2 positive, were IHC 2 plus. So 22 patients in all were HER2 positive for this uh, uh, trial. And the response rates for these patients was 36.4%. Uh, and the duration of response was 7.4 months for the patient who responded. And as you can see on the right side, you can see the waterfall plot and the spider plot. And this is more data of the, of the same trial. As you can see, the median progression-free survival, and I'm just focusing on the HER2 positive patients, was about 5.1 months with a median overall survival of 7.1 months. For HER2 negative, it was understandably less, a median progression-free survival of 3.5 months and a median overall survival of 8.9 months. And again, this is not a um, benign drug by any uh, stretch of the imagination. It, uh, it almost behaves uh, in a way like chemotherapy. If you can see there was, uh, you know, 68.8% of your patients got any grade of anemia and about 53% did get graded grade three or higher. Uh, about 31% had grade three or higher neutropenia and about 31% grade three or higher white, white blood cell count disc, uh, decrease. And importantly, there was a lymphocyte decrease also. And the uh, most important toxicity or one of the very important toxicities that we have to look out for is the interstitial pneumonitis, which was grade three or higher in 12.5% of cases. So really have to know how to treat these patients and catch these, uh, especially the pneumonitis cases early in the disease, in the treatment. And now I'm gonna talk about zanitidumab. It's a bi-specific antibody for HER2 expressing tumors. As was said earlier, it binds to two domains on the HER2 protein, the extracellular domain two and extracellular domain four, similar to the binding of trastuzumab, which is on ECD4 and pertuzumab, which is on ECD2. Now this dual HER2 binding of zanitidumab drives a unique mechanism of action. It gets enhanced receptor clustering on cell surface compared to the trastuzumab-pertuzumab, and there's inhibition of cell uh, proliferation, and then other cytotoxicities like ADCC and CDC-driven uh, driven cytotoxicity. And this was initially, this was part of a, of a basket trial, which was... Uh, Again, uh, you know, just different baskets for HER2 expressing metastatic cancers. And as you can see at the bottom, we had 22 patients 
in this basket trial uh, uh, for BTC. And this was recently reported in the Lancet Oncology. Uh, again, this is a very busy slide, but the main thing you have to remember from this is that about 23% or one fifth of the patients with BTC did get prior HER2 targeted therapy uh, and the patients uh, all got trastuzumab in the setting. The main side effects of uh, uh, zanitidumab is diarrhea infusion reactions, mostly the grade one and two with a few grade three and four events. And this was the waterfall plot of all the patients. There was an overall response rate. So responses or at least benefit across all tumor subtypes, which was about 37% was the overall response rate in these patients. And this was the activity with, uh, especially with uh, just with uh, in biliary tract cancer patients, the overall response rate was 38% with a median duration of response of 8.5 months. And this led, this kind of interesting and exciting phase one data led to this global phase 2B study of zanitidumab monotherapy and HER2 amplified BTC. This is a truly global trial. It was uh, originally, it had to enroll about 100 patients. We ended up enrolling 80 patients to the HER2 positive arm defined as HER2 2 plus and 3 plus and about seven patients to the HER2 negative arm, which was zero and one plus. But zanitidumab was given a 20 milligram per kilogram IV given once every two weeks. We imaged patients every eight weeks with the primary endpoint of objective response rate and the secondary key secondary endpoints of duration of response, disease control rate and progression-free survival and the adverse events. Again, this was a global trial, the first of its kind. Uh, majority of the trials before were done as part, smaller parts of a basket trial or investigated initial trial in certain geographic locations. Truly global trial. It was 32 countries, sorry, 32 sites, nine countries across four continents. And this was the overall, confirmed overall response rate was by independent central review and by investigative assessment. Interestingly, it was exactly the same, 41.3%. One patient had a CR, and I'm now focusing on the independent central review. 32 patients had a PR, 22 patients had stable disease for a disease control rate of 68.8%. And the clinical benefit rate defined as CRPR and stable disease greater than or equal to six months was 47.5%. At the time of data cutoff, 16 patients had ongoing responses. This is the spider plot of the same. Those little green arrows that you can see were the 16 patients who had ongoing responses. Uh, so again, uh, like we said, 41% of the patients had a confirmed overall response rate. And the patients who were responding, the duration response was a durable 12.9 months. And interestingly, the time to first response uh, was a relatively short 1.8 months. Remember, we were scanning these patients every two months or every eight weeks, actually. Uh, this was the progression-free survival was 5.5 months in our cohort. And remember, I'm talking about only HER2 positive or over our amplified cohort, which was IHC 2 plus and 3 plus. And these patients were ish or in situ hybridization positive. So IHC 2 plus, 3 plus, ish positive. The overall survival data is not yet mature. And these were the adverse events of special interest. The adverse events really were similar to our phase one trial. So diarrhea and infusion-related reactions were the most common ones, but these were the more of the adverse of special interest. The infusion-related reactions, again, majority grade one and two, 
all the events resolved and generally within one day. Uh, most of these events did occur during the first cycle of treatments and most had really no recurrence. Uh, we did see decreased LVEF in five patients clinically asymptomatic and the events were confounded by pre-existing or concurrent conditions. Diarrhea, again, about 43.7% any grade, about 6.9% greater than equal to grade three. All but two events managed outpatient like we do for these patients with loperamide. And most patients really resolved at the time of data cut off uh, with the median time to resolution of about two days. Uh, no patients really discontinued treatment due to treatment-related adverse events uh, uh, in, this, uh, in, this, in this trial. So to conclude, uh, Zanitidumab demonstrated anti-tumor activity, including a rapid and durable responses in patients with treatment refractory HER2-positive BTC. Uh, Zanitidumab demonstrated a manageable and tolerable safety profile. There were few events which lead to treatment discontinuation. We did not see any grade four AEs and no deaths were treatment related. Uh, the most common AEs were infusion-related reactions. Interestingly, we did pre-medicate a majority. Almost all the patients were pre-medicated in this trial for the infusion-related reactions. And diarrhea, which is predominantly low-grade and reversible. And these results do support Zanitidumab having a meaningful clinical benefit and potential as a future treatment options in patients with HER2-positive BTC. We also have additional uh, studies which are both planned and active, including Zani. Demab in uh, combination with cis-platin and gemcitabine. Now, looking ahead, this ASCO was actually very exciting for her to targeted BTC, which is actually a very niche patient population. Uh, so we were excited about uh, multiple abstracts, including the Zanitidumab data, which was presented at ASCO. There was also presentation of the tucatinib and the trastuzumab data. Again, this was part of a phase two basket trial. There were about 30 patients in this trial. So a smaller a subset, uh, the confirmed overall response rate was 46.7%. The median duration of response for the responders was six months and the median progression-free survival was 5.5 months. Uh, we also saw uh, uh, the Destiny Pan Tumor O2 interim analysis, which was for TDX, which was a broad activity for HER2 expressing solid tumors. Again, there were 22 BTC patients in this. The overall response rate was 37.1%. Uh, for IHC2 plus was a little bit less, uh, about 27.2%. And for overall response rate for IHC3 plus was about 61%. We also saw a smaller, very interesting trial. It wasn't smaller, it was about 80 plus patients, was trastuzumab plus gemcitabine cisplatin as a frontline setting for treatment naive HER2 positive uh, ability to track cancer than the combination uh, of the trastuzumab, which gemcitabine cisplatin, led to a median progression-free survival of 7.95 months and a median overall survival of 9.95 uh, uh, months. So uh, very interesting uh, and very exciting ask for all of us who treat cholangiocarcinoma patients. And with that, I'm going to give it back to you, Alana, for questions. Thank you. Um, so let's start with the case one discussion. Um, this is a patient, um, his name is Joseph. He's a 60 year old man. Um, he's recently been diagnosed with multifocal intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. He has bilobar hepatic disease and metastasis to the lungs. However, his ECOG performance status is one. He's been initiated on gemcitabine, cisplatin and durvalumab and subsequently progresses. Um, let me ask you this question, uh, Shubham, what is your next step in management? 
Yeah, in golf, we call this a chip shot. So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, uh, thank you for that question. So one thing I wanted to actually tell the viewers is, which was of interest that we didn't show uh, that is part of the presentation is about 26% of the patients. So one fourth of the patients did get some kind of checkpoint inhibitor before they got zanitidumab. So that's an important thing because now it's widely you know, accepted when we did the trial, uh, you know, this was the checkpoint inhibitors were not approved. So one fourth of the patients did get Zanitidumab, we did a post hoc analysis on these one fourth of these patients, and the response was exactly the same. It was like a 41 or 42%. So, interestingly, it really did not change in this post hoc analysis. Again, a subset analysis, small number of patients, but we did do that post hoc analysis because the reality is these are approved now agents. Mm -hmm. But uh, to come back to your question, uh, the next step in management, uh, uh, you know, for the NCCN guidelines, we can always. Uh, do trastuzumab, pertuzumab. Uh, that's part of the NCCN guidelines. If you can get it approved uh, as part of a clinical trial, uh, I would, uh, you know, would uh, would love to enroll them into zanitidumab. But that trial is closed now. But if you had a trial open, uh, that's what I would go for. Or any HER2 basket trial, which is available of maybe an ADC. You know, that would also be reasonable. Looking at all the, uh, you know, looking at all the all all what we see come out from ASCO 2023. So I think the future is bright. Uh, so I can, I've got, you know, different ways to treat these patients now. So let me ask you um, this question, you know, when would you consider, what would you consider as the optimal time for doing molecular profiling or NGS testing? Because perhaps for not all patients would, would this information be available? Um, yes, I would. Yeah. So great question, Alana. And uh, the, the main thing is if you don't look, you will not find, Right. So we need to look to find, and a next-gen sequencing, I would recommend anybody with a locally advanced or a metastatic BTC, and anybody in that should get next-gen sequencing because not only HER2, you can find the TMB, you can find uh, MSI, you can find BRAF mutation, B600E, that's targetable in BTC also. You can find FGFR, NTREC fusions, and HER2 amplification. So they, it's, it's a target-rich disease. We need to do it in all our patients who are, who are advanced. Um, so as, as, as sort of the title of the slide says, um, we found that the NGS testing has revealed HER2 amplification. Um, you've already mentioned that if a trial was available, you would consider Zanadatnap. And how would you approach uh, the patient counseling for potential adverse events? Yes, so, so potential adverse events is very, very important, both for all our ADCs and for zanitidumab. So specifically for zanitidumab, you know, the main toxicity that I saw in my patients was diarrhea. So I would, I would tell them to watch out for it, just like we do with, you know, fulferinox or, you know, TCAN that we give. We talk to our patients, we counsel them, uh, we tell them to have Imodium on hand or loperamide on hand, hydrate themselves. If they're getting starting diarrhea, they should start taking Imodium and they should contact us if the diarrhea gets... Uh, you know, is, is increasing in frequency in spite of taking Imodium, it doesn't get better, then they need to contact us early so we can get them hydrated if they need IV hydration. So it's all about patient education, which is very important. And uh, we really, um, you know, these patients did well. As far as infusion-related reactions, as I said, majority of the patients did get pre-medication with the standard. We had a, we had a steroid, we had a uh, I think paracetamol or astaminophen, depending on the geographic location. And then we had... Uh, either diphenhydramine or another kind of similar agent antihistamine, depending on the geographic location. We really did not see a lot of it. And really after the first couple of cycles, it really dissipated. So uh, for the patients though, 
it's more about education and uh, really having a modium at hand. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just as a reminder, um, before we move on, if you could take a moment uh, to answer two follow-up polls on molecular testing and treatment options for HER2 expressing BTCs. And also um, as a second reminder, if there are any questions that you would like to ask us at the end of this uh, presentation, uh, you can also submit them through the Q&A um, uh, session. So our next presenter is Dr. Jeffrey Koo. He's an associate attending and head of the esophageal gastric session, uh, section. Um, of, he's a part of the gastrointestinal oncology service, member of cell, cellular therapy service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Welcome, Dr. Koo. Dr. Lenova, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with uh, the both of you tonight. So I believe that we'll also start off my section uh, with, with, a, with a question uh, and that, that you will also uh, pose to me. Um, so Thomas has recently been diagnosed with stage four G-junction adenocarcinoma, which is metastatic to lungs. His ECOG performance status is uh, zero. You order HER2 testing on the biopsy with your pathologist colleague. Uh, your pathologist colleague uses IHC for HER2 testing and reports back that the score was two plus. So what is your next step? So the, I, I, guess the, um, I guess the box on the right kind of gives it away, but this is also something I'll talk about in the next slides. There is a hierarchical reflexive testing for HER2 in, in um, a type of gastric cancer that's pretty established, but certainly an IHC result of two plus, as you know, is indeterminate. Uh, so almost automatically, uh, a pathologist should then um, defer or, or kind of refer for fish testing. So let me then talk about the current treatment algorithm. And this is an algorithm that's accepted around the world, but certainly in the U.S. Uh, is, in, is endorsed by CAP, so the College of American Pathologists, as well as ASCO. Uh, and, and again, the, the hierarchical nature means that we start with immunohistochemistry, the benefit of which is that it's a quick test with a short turnaround. And if you have a result that's zero to one plus, that is a HER2 negative tumor and no additional testing is needed. On the other hand, if you have an IHC3 plus tumor, that's also considered a positive HER2 positive tumor. And also similarly, no additional testing is required. The only situation where additional testing is required is exactly as in the case discussion. If you have an IHC2 plus result, that's considered indeterminate. One should then perform FISH. Again, FISH is more costly, potentially takes up to a calendar week to, to result. Uh, but if the FISH result is negative, that's considered HER2 negative. Uh, if, it's, if a FISH is positive, that's, then that's considered HER2 positive. And you see that that leads to very different treatment options. Certainly focusing on the right, if we focus on HER2 positive disease, uh, the standard of care globally uh, and in the U.S. until recently uh, would be chemotherapy with a platinum fluoroprotein doublet in addition to trastuzumab. So an additional point about HER2 testing in esophageal gastric cancer versus something like breast cancer is that it's quite different. So first of all, there is significant heterogeneity between one tumor cell and the next. And likely because of this, there is certainly a higher possibility of having a false negative result. So as a result, it's actually very important to, uh, to try to obtain as much of a tumor biopsy as you can and also to analyze as much tissue as you can. So this really goes back to a gastroenterologist or to an interventional radiologist who's doing the initial biopsy. 
um, it's always important in gastric cancer to try to get as much tissue as possible. Now, one other unique feature about HER2 staining is that the protein expression actually is absent on the digestive luminal membrane, meaning that the staining is not completely circumferential. And this is the so-called basal lateral pattern. So ultimately, because of all these reasons, it's really important that specific criteria for esophageal gastric cancer be used for HER2 testing. But more importantly, it's important that the HER2 testing be done in a reference lab and in a central lab or in a lab that has experience in, in testing HER2 tumors uh, in gastric cancer. So another important question is who should be tested for, for HER2 uh, overexpression and when should this take place? And here we see guidelines from you know, various international, uh, international societies uh, from, from Asia, Europe, as well as here in the US. Uh, the answer is pretty straightforward. Essentially any patient with metastatic disease should be tested for HER2 positivity. Now the NCCN guidelines on the right have an additional uh, caveat or situation. At the time of progression on HER2-based therapy, they also recommend repeat biomarker testing, ideally, for, ideally of a progressive lesion. And the reason for this is that there are now multiple data sets that show that up to about 30% of the time, an initially HER2-positive tumor can become HER2-negative at the time of progression on HER2-based therapy. And we think that this is likely an acquired mechanism of resistance to the initial HER2 treatment. Now, I'll come back to this uh, when we talk about the studies involving TDXD or trastuzumab deruxtecan. So, as we talked about, uh, in the, with, with regards to Thomas, um, we would then perform FISH testing. And in this case, FISH is positive, which means HC2+, FISH positive. Uh, he therefore has a HER2 positive tumor, uh, and therefore that we can then talk about therapeutics uh, for our patient Thomas. Now, I already alluded to this, but I think all of us on, on, on this call uh, are aware of the TOGA study. This was a pivotal study that was published in 2010. This is the first study to show benefit for adding an anti-HER2 therapy or any targeted therapy to esophagogastric in the first-line setting. It actually was the first study uh, where the median overall survival in the experimental arm crossed the psychological one-year barrier. Again, randomized phase three study, uh, nearly 600 patients were randomized to receive a fluoropenine platinum doublet with or without trastuzumab. Response rate and progression-free survival were improved in the experimental arm. And of course, there was also a significant improvement in overall survival in the experimental arm. And you see that represented here. Uh, median overall survival is 13.8 months versus 11.1 months uh, in patients who receive chemotherapy alone. Now, this is actually a critical point and actually ties back to why we test for HER2 the way we, that we test for. So back in the day, the definition of HER2 positivity was IHC3 plus or FISH positivity. So on the top in the forest plot, you'll see the various subgroup analyses. But what I've highlighted is a post hoc exploratory analysis in which outcomes were stratified based on patients who are what we would now call HER2 positive in a contemporary setting. So in other words, IHC3 plus or IHC2 plus FISH positive versus a smaller group of patients who were IHC0 or 1 plus and FISH positive. And you'll see that all of the benefit seems to have accrued to what we now consider HER2 positive patients. And the other patients did not seem to derive benefit, uh, has a ratio close to one with very wide confidence intervals. So at the time, uh, the regulatory agencies around the world handled these data in different ways. Here in the US actually, uh, trastuzumab in combination with chemotherapy was actually approved based on the intention to treat uh, patient eligibility criteria. 
But in Europe, the EMA actually approved it based on the patients who are most likely to benefit. We know now in the fullness of time that here in the US and around the world, we now consider her two positivity to be exactly what I've discussed, IHC three plus or IHC two plus and fish positive. So at the time that Togo was, was, was conducted and presented, there really was a hope that that would be the first of many positive uh, HER2 studies in esophageal gastric cancer, and that essentially we would inherit and test the hand-me-downs for breast cancer. But unfortunately, that really was not the case. For nearly the next decade, we had a series of negative randomized phase three, as well as randomized phase two studies. And, and I present them here for your information. In fact, the one study that was technically negative, but that came the closest to being positive was actually the Jacob study. And this was a study that added pertuzumab to the standard combination of trastuzumab and chemotherapy. Uh, there actually was statistically significant improvements in both uh, response rate as well as progression-free survival. Uh, and you'll see that overall survival actually was numerically improved. There was about a three-month improvement. Hazard ratio was 0.84, but the study just missed statistical significance. P-value was 0.057. So the assumption is that if the study had been larger, it probably would have been powered to detect a survival difference. But nevertheless, I mean, there are no longer any evaluations of pertuzumab in gastric cancer. But again, I think this is relevant, and I mentioned this because trastuzumab, pertuzumab, you know, in one molecule is xanadatumab, and I'll talk about the xanadatumab data in the next couple of slides. So uh, I think all of us are also familiar with Keynote 811. This really was a successor to the, successor to the TOGA study uh, in which pembrolizumab was added to the combination of trastuzumab and chemotherapy. This, again, was a large phase three study, enrolled nearly 700 patients. Uh, primary endpoint are survival outcomes, but an important secondary endpoint was response rate. So these are the results of a planned interim analysis. So this is not the entire population. This is merely the efficacy population of about 260 patients. And in this planned interim analysis, there was a dramatically significantly improved uh, improvement in response rates to almost 75% from 52%. Uh, P-value was highly statistically significant. You'll see that in the pembrolizumab arm, there was an 11% complete response rate. Uh, what's interesting is that duration of response was not significantly improved in the pembrolizumab arm versus the regular uh, trastuzumab plus chemotherapy arm. But nevertheless, on the basis of this improvement in response rates, uh, without survival data, survival data remained pending at this time, this combination actually was approved by the US FDA, so that in the US now, pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab and chemotherapy is standard of care. Now, this is in contrast to everywhere else in the world where trastuzumab plus chemotherapy remains standard pending the survival data that are eagerly awaited. So this actually has created an unusual situation uh, where the um, clinical environment has, is different in the US and the rest of the world. And this actually does have impacts on clinical trial accrual, which I'll talk about briefly as well in the next several slides. Now, TDXD is something that Dr. Panther has already talked about, and, and, and we've heard a little bit about this molecule. So it is an antibody drug conjugate, and there are potential advantages that I've highlighted on the left. First of all, the topo isomerase inhibitor, um, the uh, deruxtecan, is, is very high potency. Uh, there's a high ratio of trastuzumab to payload molecules, is about one to eight. And actually, most significantly, uh, there is the potential for what's called a bystander effect. Uh, you'll see in the cartoon on the right uh, that trastuzumab is linked to the deruxtecan with a, uh, with a cleavable linker. Once this molecule is internalized into a tumor cell, it actually is cleaved and the deruxtecan can, can actually then diffuse into other neighboring cancer cells. And this may be particularly advantageous in gastric cancer, where, as I mentioned, 
O2 positivity tends to be a little bit uh, spotty or patchy or heterogeneous. So in other words, it can diffuse from a HER2 positive cancer cell theoretically into a HER2 negative neighboring cancer cell. So TDXD was evaluated originally in the Destiny Gastric Zero One study. Uh, this is a study um, that was performed exclusively in East Asian patients, uh, mostly from Japan and Korea. It was a randomized phase two study that looked at TDXD versus dealer's choice of chemotherapy, and that was either irinotecan or paclitaxel, uh, as third-line therapy uh, for patients with HER2-positive disease. Primary endpoint of the study actually was response rate, and that was, and, 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 and that was significantly improved. You'll see at the bottom, response rate was 51% versus 14%. But if the primary endpoint was met, an important secondary endpoint analysis was overall survival, which you see represented in the Kaplan-Meier curve on the left. And you'll see dramatic improvement in overall survival of nearly four months as a ratio of 0.6, highly, highly significant and also statistically significant. So building on this, the next study that followed was Destiny Gastric 02. So this was a single arm phase two study that was conducted in patients in the US, uh, well, North America, as well as Western Europe uh, with HER2 positive disease. And again, unlike Destiny Gastric 01, which was a third line study, this was a second line study. Now, a very important difference as well is that in this study, patients have to have a mandatory pretreatment biopsy after progression on trastuzumab because as I've already, uh, as I already mentioned, up to 30% of the time, HER2 positivity can be lost. Uh, primary endpoint of the study was confirmed response rate, uh, and you'll see the outcomes on the right. Confirmed response rate was 41.8%. Um, and then we now also have um, survival data. Median, median PFS is 5.6 months. Median overall survival is 12.1 months. And we see that represented here in the Kaplan-Meier curves. These results actually are virtually superimposable upon the results from Destiny Gastric 01. Now, on the basis of both Destiny Gastric 01 and Gastric 02, PDXD is now approved in many places around the world. Uh, the first place it was approved in was in Japan in September 2020. That was based on the Destiny Gastric 01 data and consistent with the patient population. In Japan, it's approved as third line or greater treatment. Interestingly, um, TDXD was approved several months later, January 2021, in the U.S. It actually was approved also on the basis of Destiny Gastric 01 data, but in the U.S., it's approved as post-trastuzumab therapy, meaning that patients can receive it in second line. And then most recently in, in Europe, uh, it was approved in December 2022 on the basis of both of these studies. And in Europe, like in the U.S., it is also approved as second line or greater therapy. Uh, there are other ongoing uh, Destiny, Gastric Destiny Gastric studies. The one I'll mention is Destiny Gastric 04. This is actually a phase three study that's looking at second line TDXD uh, versus standard of care remesirumab paclitaxel. So one thing uh, definitely to talk about is interstitial lung disease, which is as, that's associated with TDXD. Um, so Dr. Pant, I was actually surprised in the study that he mentioned that it was about a 25% rate. But in most of the larger studies in, sol in various solid tumors, we do see an ILD rate of 10% in all patients. Unfortunately, that does include uh, grade five toxicity in some patients, meaning that it causes death. So with this slide, I'll, I will, I'll, I'll refer you to the third column, which is how we manage it. So first of all, what is grade one interstitial lung disease? Grade one interstitial lung disease actually means that a patient is completely asymptomatic, but we see radiographic findings, ground glass opacities and imaging uh, that ultimately are consistent with ILD toxicity. Even for patients who have no symptoms, but who have radiographic evidence, 
that the current guidelines are to hold treatment completely until the CT findings completely resolve. Uh, one can consider giving low-dose steroids under these circumstances. Now, if the interstitial lung disease does not resolve within seven weeks, uh, TDXD actually should be permanently discontinued. On the other hand, with any higher grade, grade two to four ILD, uh, TDXD has to be permanently, con permanently discontinued and patients have to be started on steroids right away. Uh, clearly, I would advocate and recommend for having an experienced pulmonologist be involved in management of any of these toxicities. So that anatomy we really heard a lot about it. This is from the basket study, uh, and there was significant activity in the patients with gastric cancer who were treated. So this led to a, uh, a phase two study. This is the ZW25201 study. Uh, this was an open label study uh, evaluating three different combinations of zanadatumab uh, with KPOX chemotherapy, with 5-FU cisplatin, and with full FOX chemotherapy. First part of the study was to establish safety, and if each regimen was safe, then the next part was to look at response rate as well as survival outcomes. These are the toxicity data. This is a very um, this is a very busy slide, uh, but but I would point out that the one toxicity that emerged uh, that, uh, was diarrhea. Uh, so to, I think, um, the great surprise of, of the investigators and patients on the study, there was a grade 3-4 diarrhea rate of 40% with a combination of zanadatumab and chemotherapy. We've already heard that zanadatumab does have a, have a, um, is associated with diarrhea on its own, but this toxicity is really significantly increased when combined with chemotherapy. So based on this early, based on these early data, uh, the study was modified so that all patients received mandatory loperamide prophylaxis and with that, the grade three, three, four diarrhea rate came down to a slightly more manageable uh, 20%. So these are the efficacy data. Uh, if you focus on the column on the right, in 28%, sorry, in 28 patients who were um, response um, valuable, uh, there was a confirmed objective response rate of 75%. Uh, the disease control rate was 89%. And the median duration of response was very encouraging at 16 plus months. More recently at GI ASCO, Dr. Alamova updated these data to include survival data. Uh, you see that the median PFS is 12.5 months, which is encouraging. Uh, but what's even more impressive uh, is the overall survival median. Overall survival actually is not reached, but the 18-month overall survival rate uh, is a very impressive 84%. So based on these data, the Horizon GEA01, which is a phase three study, is currently ongoing. Um, so this uh, study actually has three arms. The standard arm is trastuzumab plus chemotherapy, and there actually are two experimental arms. One experimental arm is zanadatumab plus chemotherapy alone, and the second experimental arm is zanadatumab plus immunotherapy. Tizilizumab is an anti-PD-1 antibody plus chemotherapy. Primary endpoints are of survival outcomes, and the study is powered to compare both experimental arms to the control arm. Uh, both experimental arms are not meant to be combined, but they're compared to each other. So because Keynote 811, pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab and chemotherapy is standard in the U.S., uh, the study actually is not open in the U.S. because the control arm does not include immunotherapy. So there are other, anti, uh, uh, other novel anti-HER2 therapies that I've listed here, but for the interest of time, uh, I will not go into them, but they are provided as a reference. So in summary, uh, we all know that the TOGA study established that trastuzumab plus chemotherapy is a standard of care in the first-line setting. More recently in the U.S., the addition of pembrolizumab um, uh, was based on the Keynote 8011 data uh, with survival data pending at this time. Uh, TDXC, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, 
can provide benefit in the second line or later setting. Uh, it is important to monitor for interstitial lung disease, and that is equal part physician as well as patient education. Uh, there are other uh, ongoing studies of TDXD. And finally, the phase three Horizon GEA01 study is currently evaluating Zanadanumab uh, in the first line setting for HER2 positive disease. So with that, uh, we will finish with another case discussion uh, and I'll uh, invite uh, Dr. Alamova to present that. So we have a 70 year old male uh, presenting with worsening dysphagia, reflux symptoms and 20 pounds of weight loss over six weeks. Sounds like our typical patient. EGD reveals a G-junction tumor. Biopsies positive for invasive adenocarcinoma, which is moderately differentiated. HER2 is IHC3+, and pdl one CPS is 10. It's mis mismatch repair proficient. Um, you have a subsequent MSK impact testing revealing an, uh, HER2 amplification. Um, five mutations and four copy number alterations. None are actionable. Um, TMB is 4.4, and a CT chest of the abdomen, uh, pelvis, and chest reveals G-junction thickening, periesophageal <coughs> lymph nodes up to two centimeters, and several liver lesions up to three to four centimeters, all of which are consistent with metastatic disease. So um, let me ask you this question. What would be your next step in management, and what would you recommend for systemic uh, therapy? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I think that at this point, I personally, I think, would have enough information uh, to initiate treatment. I think one question um, would be, you know, whether one would biopsy the liver lesions to document that they are that they represent metastatic disease. Um, I personally would not. I mean, you know, fifty percent of patients uh, in North America present with metastatic disease. The liver is an extremely common site of presentation. Uh, my typical practice is to consider a biopsy of a suspected metastatic site only if there's a very atypical or kind of uh, discordant response. Uh, so certainly on the basis of this, I would accept that the patient does have HER2 positive metastatic disease. So, you know, as, as discussed, uh, you know, outside of a clinical study here in the US, we would offer that patient pembrolizumab, trastuzumab, and chemotherapy. And, and, and almost always I would offer patients full Fox chemotherapy, uh, especially in this case, when the patient has dysphagia, uh, may not be able to swallow something like, like capecitabine. Um, you know, we've, of course, all talked about the phase three study with, with Zanadanabab. And again, I mean, you know, you and I talked a little bit about this before, before the start of this. Uh, it really is a pity that, unfortunately, that study is not accruing in the U.S. Uh, because the control arm does not include uh, immunotherapy, which is now standard of care. But certainly that or another, you know, her two positive study uh, would certainly be a, a strong treatment option as well. Thank you. Um, so... This patient initiated treatment with pembrolizumab, trastuzumab, and Folfox. Dysphagia resolved after two cycles. A CT scan after four cycles uh, reveals significant disease uh, in uh, the esophagus. The periesophageal lymphadenopathy, uh, uh, sorry, significant decrease in the esophageal thickening, periesophageal lymphadenopathy, and liver metastasis. But oxaliplatin has to be discontinued after eight cycles because of uh, development of intermittent grade one neuropathy in his hands and feet. He then continues with Pembro, Trastuzumab, and 5-FU for another eight months before he experiences progression of one and only one of his liver metastases. Uh, there was also some increased thickening in the distal esophagus, uh, which, and he also had worsening dysphagia for solid foods. So what would you do next now? 
Yeah, so I, I, I like your emphasis on the fact that only one of the liver metastases progress. You know, I, I, I mean, I think outside of a study, I think if, if there's small volume of progression, but the patient remains well, certainly I think one option would be to continue the current treatment. I mean, we don't have limitless options. So I think, you know, being a little bit uh, conservative about when you change treatment makes sense. But I think in this case, what really prompted me to consider changing treatment was that for the first time, then he began to have recurrent, you know, dysphagia, which had resolved, you know, right away with treatment. So, so on that basis, I, I, I thought that we did have to change treatment and, you know, consistent with what I've talked about, uh, we, you know, as an institution, try to biopsy um, uh, progressive lesions um, to try and document whether they, the tumors remain HER2 positive or not. So in this case, the option would be an IR-guided liver biopsy or because he was having more dysphagia, an endoscopy to biopsy the primary tumor. And, and for us, it's always a little bit quicker to get an endoscopic <clears throat> biopsy. So, so that's exactly what, uh, so that's exactly what we did. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, and sorry. Hmm, that's a little bit, here we go. So, so that's exactly what we did. And, and in fact, it did turn out that the primary tumor remained HERS2 positive. IHC was exactly three plus. So this is a little bit unusual given pro progression, but at, in this setting, what systemic therapy would you recommend next? Would you recommend TDXD? Would you recommend paclitaxel remesuramab? Um, if a trial of zanadatinap were available, would you consider that? Yeah, so certainly I think the, you know, again, I, I think that, you know, while there technically is equipoise between remesuramab, paclitaxel, and TDXD, and again, there is an ongoing um, global study that's not enrolling in the U.S. Uh, and not enrolling in Japan, I, mean, I would favor, you know, TDXD in, in this context. Uh, given the high response rate, uh, as well as favorable duration of response. Uh, similarly, I think there you know, is equipoise between uh, zanadatamab and, and, and TDXD to focus on HER2 therapies in particular. Um, you know, I think the, the single agent activity of, of zanadatamab based on the basket phase one study uh, and actually a pretty kind of treatment refractory setting uh, was, was, was encouraging and was somewhat in the ballpark of TDXD. So certainly, I think if there were an experimental option or experimental study involving TDXD, I think it certainly would be a strong consideration and something to discuss for the patient as well. Thank you. Um, so just um, a reminder again that if you have any questions, you can submit them through the Q&A uh, function. And before we move on, could you please take a moment to answer three follow-up polls on molecular testing and treatment options for HER2-expressing GEA? So now we'd like to move into the audience uh, question and answer portion of the program. And there are a few questions that have come in. Um, so I'll start with the first one. Um, and maybe I'll pose this question to Shubham first and then to, to Jeff. Um, is there any role for HER2-targeted therapy in the neoadjuvant setting for BTC? Yeah, that's a great question. Anna. So uh, in BTC, again, like I said, there is uh... It's a heterogeneous disease, right? So you have gallbladder cancer, which is about 20 to 30%, uh, angio, which is about 10 to 20%, and intrahepatic angio, where you really see that locally advanced is about one to 5%. So it's kind of a small number. So I'm, um, if we did introduce in the neoadjuvant setting, I'm sure we would see responses because we did see a pretty robust response in these patients, but it would be very challenging to the trial to show that same because just because of the patient population is, uh, is, 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 you know, is, is limited. Uh, so uh, I think uh, would be great. I think it's a valid target. It's an oncogenic driver. We are going to see responses. So 
out of a clinical trial, you know, patients, can, you know, they can be consideration locally advanced cancers to, um, uh, you know, to, to add on at least some her to targeted agents because we know it shows uh, benefit. And we have the GEMSYS data in frontline now with trastuzumab. So there is, there is some data out there that can be used to try to uh, maybe downstage these tumors in the new adjuvant setting. Thank you. Jeff, the same question to you. Do you think there is a role for HER2-targeted agents in HER2-positive gastroesophageal adenocarcinoma? Yeah, well, I, I think there's definitely a role, but I think that, you know, the completed studies have been mixed. So I think the study that some people may be aware of is the RTOG1010 study, which is performed you know, here in the U.S. It was a study that added trastuzumab to actually chemoradiation with carboplatin and pricotaxol uh, for esophageal and GE junction adenocarcinomas that were HER2 positive. Uh, and the results were presented, you know, about two years ago, and to everyone's surprise, flatly negative. No improvement in pathological survival outcomes with adding trastuzumab to chemoradiation. On the other hand, we definitely have a signal of activity in, in, in a study performed by the German group called Petraka, and that's where they added trastuzumab and pertuzumab uh, to perioperative flawed chemotherapy. So it was meant to be a randomized phase two study that if positive would lead to randomized phase three. The randomized phase two part, uh, the, the primary endpoint of the randomized phase two part was pathologic complete response rate. And that actually was significantly increased um, with, um, with, with adding pertuzumab and, and trastuzumab. Uh, the path CR rate, I think, was about 35% uh, versus more like 15% with flock chemotherapy alone. So quite a significant difference. Uh, two problems there. One was actually was a, grade three, four diarrhea rate, also of about 40%. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, when the Jacob study with the phase three first line metastatic study, when that read as being negative, um, uh, uh, you know, pertuzumab was no longer evaluated. And so the phase three study never happened. Uh, but certainly that would suggest that there is the potential for activity uh, for anti her 2 therapy. And, and, you know, I know now the cooperative groups and, and others are trying to kind of come up with a, a strategy looking at anti her 2 therapy in the perioperative setting, but but it's you know it's surprising you know Togo was in 2010. 13 years later, we actually don't have a validated anti her 2 strategy in the in the locally advanced setting. Thank you. Um, I think the next question also for both of you, and maybe Shubham, you could start again. Um, when should you use anti uh, her 2 agents with? and without other targeted agents? Yeah, so normally, you know, what we, uh, a lot of the data, at least in BTC is in the second line setting, second line and post second line setting. So I'm a big believer if uh, it's an oncogenic driver, it works, you should move it a little bit earlier. So I mean, you know, not wait for the third line setting, you know, give it in the second line setting. So the normally what I do in my practice is all the uh, BTCs which come to my practice, I, if they're locally advanced metastatic, I sequence them. And, uh, and then based on, you know, and then they get chemo frontline with immunotherapy nowadays. And uh, so I have that information ready to go for, a, you know, if they're progressing. So I would include it early, you know, uh, earlier, you know, not wait for the third line setting, kind of would do it in the second line setting. As far as combinations, you know, there's uh, definitely data for uh, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, again, like a combination. Uh, there's a clinical trial data for zanitidumab, though it's not obviously, it's not approved in the setting. Uh, there's also, you know, for tocatinib and trastuzumab, there's data again, not approved in that setting. So, but there's combination data that uh, that I can potentially use for my second line patient, you know, for my second line HER2 amplified patients. And I have, uh, like I have a couple of patients on trastuzumab, pertuzumab who are doing, who are doing well. 
Jeff, the same question to you. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, again, I think in terms of not quite a targeted therapy, but again, in the U.S., you know, pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab and chemotherapy, you know, is approved in the first line setting. You know, since all of these treatments have moved in the first line, um, you know, later line HER2 strategies, um, other than TDXD as, as monotherapy, are still evolving. But, you know, one of the DESTINY studies, DESTINY Gastric 03, is actually kind of a phase 1B2 study. It's signal finding, looking at multiple different kind of cohorts in the second line and first, second line and first line. I, I believe that there is a second line cohort looking at remisuramab in an anti-androgenic therapy in combination with TDXD because there are preclinical data suggesting that anti-androgenic and anti-HER2 you know, therapy uh, can, potentially, can potentially have additive or synergistic benefits. Uh, so there are combinations like that that are being looked at. Just one quick question that just came through. Uh, for off-label use of small molecule TKIs or other agents, can we treat uh, HER2 genetic mutations rather than HER2 amplification, so positivity based on amplifications with these drugs? And the question to both of you, because we did show that mutations are present in small number of these patients as well. Yeah, I could go first. So in BTC, you know, there have been trials, really haven't had high response rates. Uh, so I would, uh, you know, be challenging in the BTC space. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, Elena, please, please feel free to add, but I think that again, HER2 mutations actually are extremely rare in gastric. I'm not, a, I'm not aware of any data showing activity one way or the other. Um, you know, but also, I mean, there are a number of the TKIs. For example, the patent that was evaluated in two phase three studies and was negative in gastric cancer. Uh, there is a study, the Mountaineer study, that's looking at tucatinib uh, plus trisuzumab uh, plus chemotherapy in the second line setting. That study has completed accrual. Uh, but really, with regards to HER2 mutations, it's very rare, and I'm not aware of data one way or the other. Yeah, I agree with you, Jeff, 100%. Um, so thank you very much for this very good discussion. Um, and this will conclude our program tonight. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Lena. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NXP 860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.